A word from our sponsor. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company. Our latest product, Waterfall for Intrusion Detection Systems, enables safe connections between industrial intrusion detection sensors and the industrial networks those sensors monitor. Like all Waterfall products, Waterfall for IDS provides physical protection for important OT and industrial networks, not just software-based protections. For details, please visit the Waterfall website. Thank you for your attention. The Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, everybody, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. Andrew is going to introduce the guest and the subject of today's show. Andrew, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Roman Arutinov. He is the co-founder at Zage Security. Our topic is blockchains for industrial security. So let's listen in. So Roman, thank you for joining us. Our topic today is industrial blockchains. And, you know, those are two words that I'm not sure I ever expected to hear in the same sentence. Can you start at the beginning? You know, what is Zage and what have you been developing and, and who in the industrial world is using it? Thanks for having me, Andrew. Um, happy to talk about Zage and what we've been up to. So let me just start from the beginning. So here, so... Um, Zage has um, been around for about three and a half years. What we're up to is uh, we're providing a universal identity and access management solution as well as a data security solution to industrial operators. Um, think of our solution as really an identity access management and data security fabric that spans across the industrial field operations, um, whether they're in oil and gas, uh, utility sector, manufacturing, that controls all the various interactions, users to machine, machine to machine, application to machine, as well as you know how applications and are consuming the data. Uh, the product is fundamentally built on top of a blockchain technology, and there are a few reasons for why we chose to do that, um, taking into account requirements from the, uh, our customers, uh, the fact that they have distributed operations, the fact that they have mission-critical operations where availability is uh, of utmost importance, um, and the fact that they need to be all secured given the digital transformation efforts that they're all undertaking. So we work with um, power companies, utilities, um, oil and gas companies with large field operations, uh, manufacturing firms as well. And I can give you a few examples as well of how we uh, they're implementing our solutions. So I think that because this is a form of technology we haven't hit on in this podcast before, uh, we should briefly describe it. Blockchain uh, is a technology that's really only uh, just over a decade old. It was invented in a white paper in 2008 in association with the cryptocurrency Bitcoin. And the basic way that it works, um, I'm not going to give a whole history of blockchain here, uh, is the blockchain is a ledger. It's a set of records. It's a way of organizing data. So data is grouped together in what we call blocks. Um, and each block 
is linked to uh, future blocks with future data uh, by cryptography. So each block contains the cryptographic hash of the block which came before it. And in that way, uh, you can essentially prevent uh, data from being changed on this ledger. Um, because as we know, every time you change any bit of a data, uh, the cryptographic hash that results from it uh, changes dramatically. Um, so the blockchain really is just a way of keeping track of data and preventing past data from being changed without making it very apparent. So that's right. Uh, in this case, though, instead of tracking the movement of money, um, we're working with permissions is is uh, what what Zage is up to. Um, how does that how does that work? I mean, a lot of people they think of the Bitcoin blockchain as keeping track of transactions. Uh, Mary gave two Bitcoin to George, but you can think of the ledger the other way around. Instead of keeping track of transactions, you can also think of the ledger as keeping track of balances. Mary has a balance of ten Bitcoin. George has a balance of zero. After the transaction, Mary has a balance of eight. George has a balance of two. So if you think of it as keeping track of what people have, um, my understanding of what Zage is doing, among other things, at, at the very simplest level, is they are keeping track of what permissions people have as opposed to what money people have. You know, Andrew, I have never heard of blockchain used in this particular way, and I have some questions. Well, uh, let's listen in for a while and, and work work through your questions. Uh, you know, I had a lot of questions as well. My next question to uh, to Roman was, can you give me an example? So let's listen in. Can you give us a specific example? One customer, what they're doing with your stuff? Yeah, there, there are a number to name, but I'll start with, uh, uh, with General Electric. So... Uh, we work with the uh, GE Renewables uh, team, and uh, GE has operations across 80 countries, about 30,000 sites and 20,000 people interfacing with those sites, employees, contractors. Um, the challenge is uh, all of these sites think wind turbines, um, large SCADA systems, uh, have um, uh, workstations, have um, Relays have various telemetry units, SCADA systems across all of them. Um, some of these systems, in some cases, these uh, assets are owned uh, by the, the actual owner of the asset and GE simply operating it for them. So there's a need to control access both from uh, GE folks, GE contractors, and actual third parties or the owners of the asset themselves becomes a very large multi-party access control challenge um, across very uh, distributed uh, type of a geography. So um, when you start thinking of that and how to solve this type of a challenge, um, you know, you, you have to start thinking of the identities of the folks, identities of the machines, policies of how they're out to interact with each other, and that all requires uh, trust to be built uh, among users, devices, and the policies that are being enforced. Um, and uh, so Zage has implemented the security fabric. Uh, we're uh, rolling that, uh, that solution out with GE. And uh, that security fabric essentially is able to validate the various identities of the users, whether they're coming from GE, whether they're coming from another third party, uh, be able to authorize um, 
according to a policy and be able to then enforce strict access control of what they're allowed to do to certain assets. Um, also creating an immutable audit record so there's no uh, question or concern of uh, any malicious activity and uh, everything can always be double checked um, uh, after the fact. So uh, our Zay Security Fabric, the blockchain technologies that it uses is the key enable to, uh, enabler to make this happen. Um, now, and the reason is because it's, uh, there's multiple parties involved that don't necessarily trust each other. Uh, it's highly distributed. You need to have authentication authorization at the edge and across the various edges. Um, and it's highly available. So you mentioned passwords. I mean, the, the, the usual way, the traditional way to control access to things like PLCs or even, you know, software packages is passwords. Um, what's wrong with using, with using passwords? Why, why do we need a blockchain? That's a good question, Andrew. So um, what we're finding is passwords are actually um, quite a bit of a challenge, present quite a bit of a challenge in this industrial space. Um, fundamentally, uh, what's been used on most PLCs and RTUs is local accounts and local passwords. Um, those local accounts and local passwords then are shared between people. Uh, they can leave with people once they leave, they leave the company. Um, these passwords can be uh, uh, need to be locked up constantly. Uh, so as a result, most operators simply put every RTU and every PLC to have the same account, same password across 10,000 locations, and that presents a big security challenge. Uh, once malware penetrates into the environment, uh, it can quickly spread and attack all the various PLCs and RTUs. Um, the other uh, concern there is uh, the, the, the passwords can, uh, can be changed by unauthorized users. So uh, one of the examples we've run into is when a technician went out to, uh, drove out, uh, and I think it actually flew out to a remote site uh, just to figure out that the technician before them has changed the password. Uh, they had to fly back to figure out what that password was. The previous technician already left the company. They had to track him down to figure out what that password was so they can do work and, you know, and continue their maintenance operations. Uh, so that presents an operational uh, challenge uh, as well. So, um, and not to mention, uh, many of the, in fact, what we're seeing, 80% of the devices out there don't even have passwords. They speak an industrial protocol that, is, uh, that does not use a credential uh, at all. And, uh, and, 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 it, and that presents yet another security challenge as well as, a, you know, it may improve operations because of, you know, you don't even need a password to get in, but in today's context, creates a very large security problem. Okay, some of that made sense to me, but I think that his example about all the PLCs and uh, that were hooked up to the same accounts may be a little bit of a straw man argument because, uh, of course, the simpler solution, it seems to me, of, of when hundreds of PLCs are all hooked up to the same account is, is just to not do that. Do we really need a whole blockchain system to get around what seems like a pretty simple problem? 
Yeah, I mean, there are uh, there are solutions out there. There's Radius, there's Active Directory that we've talked a lot about. Uh, these are central password managers that have been used for decades. Um, you know, Active Directory is kind of Windows-centric and so might not be a terribly good fit for PLCs. Um, Radius, though, you know, was invented in, I think, 1991. It was used extensively for, for a long time for internet dial-up. So to authenticate uh, a user coming in with a password saying, do you have an account on, on this dial-up provider? You know, this was back 30 years ago when the internet was young and you still used a dial-up modem to get on the internet. Um, so that was, in fact, my next question to him saying, you know, why do we need blockchain? What's wrong with these, these central managers? So let's listen in. I think I know some of the answer already, but but for the record, um, you know, stuff like uh, Radius systems and, and Active Directory controllers manage passwords for devices, um, you know, do they not fit into this space? That's a, that's a very good question as well. So for various reasons, um, Active Directory can't be implemented uh, directly into the industrial space. Uh, some of these reasons are uh, one, that uh, the devices themselves, majority of them, do not speak uh, Active Directory. So they don't support uh, a centrally managed role-based access control type of a methodology. They simply support local accounts. Um, two, um, if you were to take an Active Directory, if you think of an Active Directory implementation, Active Directory is designed to be held in a, and hosted in a data center, protected by a fortress of firewalls so that your you know, crown jewels, your, all your accounts are not compromised. Well, then that requires every single RTU and every single PLC to have direct connectivity, two-way connectivity, into the, uh, into the data center where Active Directory is hosted. And that's just not how things are designed. Things are designed to be, in many cases, isolated, uh, uh, designed uh, to the Purdue model of network architecture, um, and that creates challenges with implementing Active Directory or, in fact, radius-based solutions um, as well. So uh, the right way to approach this is to really uh, make um, identity and access management, authentication, authorization available where the devices are in, the, in, their, in their local networks uh, where they're used. And that's uh, exactly what we do. We create a distributed identity and access management solution using a blockchain that's tamper-proof. It doesn't need to be protected by a fortress. It can withstand, um, uh, you know, uh, being uh, hosted in edge conditions across the entire field so that your uh, authentication, authorization, and enforcement can happen right there. Um, we actually went to great extent to make sure that our system can interoperate with um, existing and legacy equipment. So, so uh, whether it's a new IoT device, um, whether it's uh, you know, something that's been deployed there for 20 years, we have methods of enforcing access control after authentication and authorization um, that involves proxy services, the ability to filter data uh, based on unique identity of the user or machine interfacing with that asset. 
you know what Roman said, the example he gave of um, a system that could potentially track an unauthorized uh, change to a password, that seems to me to be a really practical use of blockchain. Because what is blockchain other than uh, a way of keeping record of what exactly has happened at what locations and at what time over the history of a network um, and a way to prevent changes to that history retroactively? So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, But I'm wondering, Andrew... um, is this maybe an excessive use of blockchain? Like, blockchain is this exciting technology, and we're all talking about, you know, blockchain for this, blockchain for this, yada, yada. Um, but it brings me to the question of, is this blockchain for blockchain's sake, or is there a real need in industrial security for this specific type of implementation, do you think? Well, let me say a couple of things. Um, one is... Um you know the example you gave of the 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 ledger keeping track of stuff that's what people tend to fixate on for bitcoin because the ledger is vitally important it's how many it's how much bitcoin i have it's how much money i have and i i really want that to be kept track of correctly but there's many as- other aspects to blockchain if all we needed was a, a central ledger we could use an ibm mainframe in in a bank we don't need uh you know blockchain running on plcs um and so there's many pieces that have to come together in order to call something uh, a blockchain. And it seems to me that the piece that Roman is exploiting heavily, maybe not exclusively, but certainly heavily here, is the intrinsically distributed nature of the blockchain. Yes, we need to keep track of a ledger saying who's who and what permissions do they have. But uh what you know the the examples he's given so far all speak to a highly distributed implementation cpus keep getting cheaper there's more and more and more of them there's thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of cpus in the implementations that uh, roman is looking at and uh, we want to be able to distribute the knowledge of who's who and what permissions do they have uh, so that each of these hundreds of thousands of devices does not need continuous online connectivity to the central, you know, the, the IBM mainframe in, in the bank saying who's who. It, it, the, the, the intrinsically distributed nature of the blockchain seems to be what, what uh, one of the, the points that, that Zage is exploiting heavily here. All right, so it takes advantage of the the natural distributed quality of of blockchain, but I'm still a little bit hazy about how exactly the system works and how each part of it interacts with other parts of it. Andrew, can you clarify? Um, yeah, in fact, um, let me let let's go back to uh, Roman because uh, I asked him a question about that next, saying, "Can you give me an example? You know, somebody flies into the substation." What's that, what does it actually feel like using the Zage fabric? So can you give me a physical example? Let's say, uh, you know, Fred walks up to a PLC that he's authorized to do something to. How does he identify himself to that PLC? How does he connect to the PLC? What, what, what actually happens? Does he plug a laptop into it? You know, what, what happens here? That's a very good question, Andrew. So well, the way that this works is... Um, uh, typically, they're accessing uh, PLCs over a network, uh, even locally in, in that environment. Even if they go on site, they plug into a switch or uh, to some sort of network to, to access that PLC. Uh, and they do so with their programming tool. Now, once Zage is, in, is installed, 
uh, we will block that access. We have a ZH enforcement point that's defined that blocks access uh, and requires authentication and authorization for any of their uh, for any of the interaction to go through to the PLC from the from the technician's laptop or from the workstation. So what they're led to do first is they need to authenticate with uh, ZH Security Fabric, and they can do so uh, using a variety of methods. Um, typically, what they do is they open a browser, they type in uh, Zage at you know comment or Zage at ge.com. Um, they uh, then they need to then provide their credentials. And the, by the way, that Fabric node is hosted in that local environment, so authentication is happening right there in the in, in very quickly, uh, regardless of connectivity. Uh, Zage Fabric nodes right there in, in that local environment able to authenticate and authorize them. So they provide their credentials. In some cases, it's username and password. And in other cases, they uh, also put in other factors, uh, uh, card key, um, um, or, um, you know, or, or, a, or a smart card or anything like that. Um, and then after authentication, they're presented with a number of options um, that can get uh, they have access to. So a number of PLCs on that site uh, or other sites they actually have access to and allowed to access. They then request access to that PLC, and the uh, communication goes through to the Zage enforcement point. Then now they're allowed to access and perform certain types of tasks, whether it's reads or writes down to a uh, granular parameter level um, based on their you know, identity and their policy. Well, that makes sense. In these industrial environments, though, there is not always connectivity with a single switch that uh, a local fabric node might be connected to. You know, sometimes devices and switches are connected to each other, uh, you know, as much as several layers deep. Can the fabric work in a daisy-chained environment? Absolutely. So um, what we deploy out into the field or into these environments is what we call the Zage Fabric nodes. And Zage Fabric nodes themselves can be daisy-chained and can uh, uh, go all the way down through uh, into the lower levels of the Purdue model, lower levels of the network architecture, where and, uh, and uh, provide authentication and authorization services to the devices out there all the way at the edge that may only be able to communicate on that local network. Um, so each gateway is proxying one layer at a time. Um, each, uh, each fabric node, I should say, is proxying one layer at a time. Uh, it has the directory service hosted on it. That directory service is being synchronized through the blockchain uh, and providing authentication and authorization services for uh, the devices in that local segment. Okay, Andrew, I have a question for you. Um, if we do, in fact, have a number of devices daisy-chained, as you guys are talking about in your example there, um, does that not introduce a single point of failure in the system, right? Earlier in your interview with Roman, he was sort of describing that problem of when you have hundreds of PLCs connected to the same account, right? And so if you breach that account, you've got access to all the PLCs. Um, 
is daisy chaining not uh, going to induce the same sort of issue for all of the devices in a chain? Because the chain that's uh, furthest out on the edge, if it gets uh, breached or if, if it's vulnerable, suddenly it's a problem for the next 12 or 100 devices along the chain. That's a good question. There, there's actually two questions buried in there. One is about daisy chaining and vulnerability, and the other one is about password management and vulnerability. Um, let's deal with daisy chaining first. Um, don't misunderstand my question to Roman or his answer. Um, I did not ask him, does, uh, you know, does Zage require you to do daisy chaining? In the industrial world, you know, think smart meters. Um, not every smart meter, every power meter in a city has internet connectivity. It may not have a good cell signal where it is, but it might have a signal to the next neighbor's smart meter. And so these smart meters, you know, are built to look around if they can find the uh, 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 their smart meter network signal. Great. If they can't, try and talk to a neighboring meter and ask them, do you have a signal? No, but I got another neighbor over there who does. And they can daisy chain through each other in order to get connected to the smart grid network. This is not something that Zage introduced. This is the nature of uh, smart meters. It's the nature of PLCs. With PLCs, we see a lot of serial connections. We see a lot of exotic connections. You know, some layers in the architecture have Ethernet, internet protocol, not internet connectivity, but internet protocol communications, conventional network communications. And they tend to be connected to devices that don't have that, but they have some other connection to those devices. And those devices might in turn be connected to even more devices over some other exotic protocol. This is not something Zage has done to their customers. This is the nature of the beast. And my question was, can you work in that environment? And his answer was, yes, of course, that is the environment we work with. We have to work with, have to work in that environment. That's, you know, the yes, of course. To your question of, does this architecture introduce vulnerability? Well, all connections introduce the opportunity to propagate attacks from one device to another, yes. But, you know, in the modern world, all of these devices are connected. And so whether they're connected by a daisy chain or whether they're connected because each of them has an IP address, uh, in a sense, is irrelevant. They're all connected. And yes, attacks propagate, and this is why we need security. And to your, you know, sort of to the, the implied question of... um a single point of failure, if we breach the password manager, whoever's maintaining the ledger, can we start tampering with stuff? Well, A, blockchain, uh, you know, has some prevention from, you know, tampering with the ledger. Uh, but B, any central password manager, if I steal an administrator password and log into a password manager like Active Directory or Radius or anybody else and start changing people's passwords, well, um, that's... You know, that's how the password manager works. The password manager buys us um, the power to, you know, recover from certain kinds of failures, forgotten passwords, people left the company, to change passwords so that uh, people who have left the company, you know, don't have the password anymore. But it costs us in terms of, uh, yeah, this central uh, vulnerability. What it means is that we need to harden and protect our password managers fairly thoroughly. And as Roman has pointed out many times, they, of course, have done this. Uh, you know, they've made their Zage fabric nodes, the ones that manage the ledger, uh, you know, as close to impenetrable as, as they can. 
you know we've been we've been using the word blockchain let's let's dig into it a bit um you know how does how does how do you how do you fit permissions into the blockchain there's lots of different kinds of blockchains what what's yours look like yeah that's right so there's a number of um of blockchains out there and we've looked at a uh, 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 quite a few of them before making our design decisions uh, ourselves. Um, so the biggest difference perhaps is that there are public blockchains and there's uh, private uh, blockchains or cooperative blockchains. Uh, the, uh, in a public blockchain, the participants are not necessarily trusted. You know, think of things like Bitcoin there. Um, and, you know, those blockchains tend to be very uh, resource intensive you know, CPU intensive, they require mining as a proof of work methodology to ensure that uh, the participants are doing the right thing. Um, we, we don't utilize that, tech, that type of a blockchain. It doesn't quite fit into the industrial space given the constraints and there's no need for it uh, anyways. Uh, what we use is a, a, a a permissioned blockchain, a private implementation of a blockchain that uh, that gets uh, implemented by the customer themselves. So it's hosted into the customer environment. That blockchain is uh, part of their operation. They can invite others to cooperate with their operations as well. But every participant in their in their uh, blockchain is explicitly permissions so it's trusted and what uh, what we provide and uh, the benefits of that is uh, the challenges that we solve and the, and the resulting benefits is that you know even though you have participants for permission explicitly allowed to join you still need to ensure that the transactions and interactions that they're performing are um, agreed upon with consensus uh, they can't be tampered or spoofed, and uh, and, um, and 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 do that across not just you know their own operation, but perhaps also uh, operations of other vendors that they rely upon. You mentioned Bitcoin, I think. I mean, that's the the, the blockchain that that springs to mind when you hear the word blockchain. Um, you know, one of the the big criticisms of Bitcoin is how much well electric power it sucks up how much uh how many computing resources need to be devoted to verifying these these transactions every change you know consumes consumes uh you know megawatts it seems um and you know in the industrial space a lot of our equipment is resource constrained there there's not high powered cpus they may not be powered they may be solar powered can you talk about uh, your blockchain in a in a resource constrained environment? That's a that's a good question. So I, um, as I mentioned before, so the the Bitcoin is a is a public type of a blockchain that requires this uh, proof of work methodology for consensus, which is CPU intensive. It requires mining to extend the blockchain. Now, in a permissioned or private blockchain. Uh, you don't need any. Uh, you don't need the proof of work type of consensus. Uh, you utilize. Uh, in fact, we utilize more of a proof of authority since every participant is um, is permissioned, is specifically explicitly uh, permissioned to be part of the uh, blockchain network. A proof of authority mechanism is uh, consensus mechanism 
is a lot more uh, resource efficient. Uh, there's no CPU intensive cycles. Uh, think of it as essentially validating the integrity of the data with neighboring nodes. Um, Zage has improved that to a greater extent. Consensus doesn't need to be gained with a majority of neighboring nodes, uh, but rather uh, neighboring nodes in its hierarchy. So if you have, uh, for example, um, a few, um, uh, let's take a uh, utility operation. Uh, if you have a substation, uh, you, can, you can deploy a few uh, blockchain nodes in there and consensus can be gained within that blockchain, within that substation itself and then propagate through the hierarchy all the way up to the uh, higher levels, like into the control centers, into the data centers, where the ultimate uh, uh, reconciled against the broader ledger. So you create a very resource uh, efficient way of recording transactions at the edge, and then being able to uh, record them gradually as they, uh, as they go up the hierarchy into the control center and data center. No, it's a, uh, we can run our, our, our fabric nodes on uh, devices as small as a Raspberry Pi uh, over uh, low bandwidth communication links just because of the hierarchical nature of, the, of our implementation and the fact that we use a proof of authority consensus uh, method. Okay, Roman mentioned the word consensus there, which has tripped me up. Um, I'm trying to figure out how consensus would be achieved in a private company where the blockchain is essentially centralized, right? Consensus in the conventional sense as it's applied to blockchain means quite literally uh, that 50 plus 0.1% of a network agrees on the reality of the blockchain, right? If you have 100 people and 51 of them say, uh, this is the correct version of the blockchain, and 49 of them say this is the correct version, then the 51 version uh, counts as the blockchain, and then the 49 version, uh, it essentially doesn't exist as a result. So I'm curious uh, what exactly Roman means by consensus when there is only really one entity controlling the entire network, which is the company that owns it. Well, I did not ask Roman precisely that question. Uh, we did talk about consensus um, after you know the the recording session finished. Uh, let me give you my 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 best answer, but put a big I think around this uh, around all of this. Um, first off, proof of authority uh, is a thing. You can Google it. It's not something that that uh, you know Zage has has made up here. Um, it is. You know, where consensus is achieved not by proof of work, but by proof of identity and by, uh, you know, the authority that has been delegated to certain identities, certain nodes in the network. What it means is that higher authority nodes can approve, uh, you know, new ledger blocks. They can approve those blocks for distribution through the, uh, the, the rest of the blockchain. Um, there is, you know, and there's another element to that when when uh, you know roman talked about consensus about n in nodes in a in a local geography before that you know the 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 ledger changes propagated to other parts of the of the world um if one of those nodes fails part of the part of the point of consensus is not just approval but 
local distribution for redundancy purposes so that if one of the local nodes fails, the other nodes have the ledger change that's been approved locally and, uh, you know, can propagate to, to, uh, other higher, higher authorities for approval to, to propagate, uh, into the rest of the world. I did ask Roman, uh, you know, our, our next topic, uh, my, my next topic with Roman has to do with, you know, you said what happens if there's a single vendor and it's, you know, it, it single, single authority and, uh, you know, they control everything. It gets more complicated when there's multiple vendors involved. So that was my next question to Roman about the, the multiple uh, authorities question. So let's listen into that. So you've described uh, a blockchain where, you know, decisions about what's allowed. And, you know, these are important decisions. You're making decisions about permissions, who's allowed to do what. Um, you're saying these decisions are authorized in in some sort of hierarchy um what what does that mean when we're talking about a relationship with external vendors you, you know you you mentioned ge there's lots of vendors in this space who who want you know remote access into stuff um who authorizes what in that in that space how how, do, how does that work can you give us you know maybe an example oh sure so <clears throat> i'll give you a couple examples there so uh we're able to essentially create um, uh, the, our fabric hosts the identities of various users, devices, and applications, and in some cases, data as well. So we can uh, we can take those identities from various sources. One of them is those identities can be defined uh, directly in our system uh, through our policy manager or the Zage manager it itself as an identity access management solution. Uh, the, the, we can also integrate with Active Directory, LDAP systems, and various other identity systems that the customer may be already using, uh, and also integrate multiple factors. So now if you have multiple um, uh, participants or more, multiple parties, uh, we can create a way to integrate with, a, with a, a identity services that are hosted by those parties themselves. Um, and then through our uh, through our Zage broker, be able to uh, suck out all that information and move it into our fabric. Now the now the operator gets to layer on uh, policies of who gets to do what, um, and also move that into the fabric. Uh, the policies can be defined in the Zage manager itself on top of the identities that we sucked out from various identity sources. Um, now, the, uh, what, that, what that creates is ability for the user to show up and, and use their true identity. Uh, you don't need an account on, uh, on a GE system, or you don't need an account on a Comet system to be able to access devices. You're, in fact, able, you, you can use the, your identity that you, your identity from the enterprise you're coming from uh, and be validated the, uh, against uh, uh, the policy that's been uh, Created for you by the owner or the operator of the of that asset uh, to access and perform various um, various um, interactions with that asset. You know, another thing that I've never really understood about blockchain is, you know, the the blockchain advertises itself as a, a distributed immutable ledger. So, you know, you've mentioned the the benefits of an audit trail, so you can. 
you know, we know who's changed what permissions, who was responsible for a change. But, you know, in resource-constrained environments, if you have a little PLC out in the middle of nowhere, uh, or worse, you know, a protective relay or something, a really specific purpose device, does it have enough storage to store all, you know, the entire ledger for all of the 10,000 devices in the system for all time? Good question. So um, we don't actually require any changes to the PLC itself. Uh, we don't store any of the block uh, fabric information, uh, identity information, and certainly not any, no blockchain component on the PLC itself. In fact, we interoperate with existing assets. Um, what the, the fabric nodes are hosted on top of, um, essentially think of them as uh, industrial computers uh, or IoT gateways that are residing in that local network. Um, so with that in mind, you, you, no change to the PLC. In fact, we're, we can get dropped in into the, into the same environment without requiring any of the assets to be changed. Um, they, so that simplifies um, deployment quite a bit. The other point that I wanted to make is that even that IoT gateway that's hosting the uh, Zage fabric node is only uh, hosting the relevant parts of the fabric node that are applicable to that geographical location. You know, I mentioned the hierarchical concept of our, um, of our uh, Zage security fabric implementation. So only the information about the relevant users and relevant devices and the relevant interactions in that specific geographic environment is hosted on top of that um, IoT gateway and the Zage security fabric. Now at the higher levels of the architecture where you may have more storage, the broader, uh, the broader Zage security fabric with the broader set of identities and policies and devices is actually uh, hosted. And that typically happens in a control center or in a data center itself. That brings me back to something else you said. You, you, you mentioned that you could sort of drop this into an existing substation. You know, the first impression I had when you started talking was that this was something that the vendor had to build into the products, like the PLCs, before deployment. But you're talking about dropping it in after the fact. Can you actually do that? How, how does that work? Yeah, so we spent quite a bit of time uh, actually making sure you can drop it into after the fact. Um, and if you think about it, the, the biggest challenge is, uh, in doing so is actual enforcement. So you can authenticate with um, uh, our fabric node, you can it can authorize to, but how do you actually enforce access control? Uh, if the PLC itself doesn't have doesn't have a enforcement mechanism, how do you actually enforce? So we um, we've created a variety of methods uh, to do so. Um, in fact, there's three sort of categories for how we go about that. One is we have a proxy service. Um, where the in, uh, where the communication with the PLC is actually being proxied by um, uh, by uh, by the Zage security fabric as well, um, so that in that situation you can't go directly to the PLC. In fact, the, the proxy has changed its password to something uh, to to a cryptographically secure password 
can be done per session, and so you're forced to interact with our proxy first. And that proxy only permits you to access certain PLCs or certain devices and only do certain things. Uh, now, there's a category of PLCs that don't even have passwords. So how do you restrict access to something that doesn't have a password at all? So here we created the what we call this age enforcement point. It's an inline filter. Think of it as a bump in the wire. It understands the communications goes going through, matches it with an identity of that uh, device that's sending that communication, the application program that's sending that application, and before allowing any of that communication to go through to the PLC, it requires the user of that application of that machine of that laptop to authenticate with his age security fabric provide credentials look up policy and then only allow certain things to go through think of it as a bump in the wire filter in other situations in the third category we actually uh, install accounts on per session basis and uh, based on an identity of the user, this is helpful with workstations um, uh, where they have uh, access control is provided through um, you know, local accounts. In, in many cases, these workstations may have thousands of accounts. Uh, if, they, if the operator really wants to, to track who's doing what and control access based on an identity, they'll have to create thousands of accounts on these machines uh, and potentially thousands of these machines. So our system automates all of that, right? So you authenticate with those HPU fabric, we install an account for you temporarily on that machine, on that Windows workstation, uh, and only give you certain permissions uh, to do certain things. So three main methods, proxy, filter, and you know account management. Roman's answer, not the one he just gave, but the one before that, uh, I think is pretty interesting. It sounds like um, his firm is taking a, a page out of Bitcoin's book because the way that storage works with them seems to me to be pretty analogous. You know, in Bitcoin, um, everybody has to store the blockchain locally on their systems or else the, the whole network doesn't work, but not everybody can store it all of the information on the blockchain. So there are what's called full nodes, which have everything, and then lightweight nodes, which are more accessible to everybody, only containing certain information, header information, so who paid who, yada, yada. Um, in, in this system, it sounds like what he's saying is that uh, the central control center, the data center, uh, needs all the storage to uh, hold all of the information about the network, but that local uh, industrial computers only holds what's relevant to them. So in that sense, it's pretty analogous to me to Bitcoin. It's interesting. I, I was uh, more interested by his the, the second part of his answer um, about, you know, how do you enforce permissions if you haven't changed anything? And... Uh, you know, I wanted to, to sort of reinforce his answer. He, he gave three scenarios. One is where I say I need to log into this PLC. The PLC only has one password. There's only one account on the PLC. And so the Zage Fabric goes out and changes that password to a one-time password. I It gives me that password. I log in. I do my thing. I log out. And Zage changes the password back to an unknown password. Nobody knows the password. Zage is the only way to get in. So, you know, I've seen that on uh, other kinds of, of uh, password managers before, but it's not very common. And the second point was the bump in the wire. 
which is you know vaguely like a firewall. You authenticate to the to the bump, and the bump allows your 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 communications to go through thereafter. Um, provide and, and looks at the communications like a firewall does, and decides is this you know is each of these kinds of communications allowed or not, depending on the, the permissions. And the third one, and they've built all this into the into the same uh, you know the same system. The third one uh, is basically for Windows-like systems or even Linux systems, which is uh, rather than connect to a domain and incur all of the overhead of managing domains the way in in the Windows world, um, Zage would log into the system, create an account for you right then and there. You log into your account, you do what you need to, you log out, and Zage deletes the account. It vanishes. These are all ways that, uh, you know, these permissions can be enforced after the fact without without building the Zage infrastructure into your system, into your industrial control system to begin with. Um, but all of that is talking about users using the system. My next question to Roman was about machine-to-machine communications. So that's great for users who are accessing you know devices and and systems um but in you know a lot of of industrial automation there is uh you know there's the SCADA server constantly pulls data from these these plcs all day long every couple of seconds the historian server constantly pulls data from the SCADA server or sometimes directly from the plcs what do you do about these these uh these systems that are talking to each other but there isn't necessarily a user involved yeah, that's a good question, Andrew. So a good example of that is actually our work that we're doing with Commonwealth Edison over in Chicago, uh, where they have an, uh, a project going on around uh, distributed energy resources and microgrids. Uh, they, uh, their interest is to be able to essentially create microgrids throughout their territory and enable communities to exchange energy with each other uh, inside a community, as well as across the community with various aggregators, and then reconcile that also with the larger distribution area network and the power um, uh, power that it provides. So here you have um, assets, think of it as solar, wind installations, uh, you have buildings who are consuming that power. You need to be able to tightly control which inverters, which batteries, uh, systems, uh, which applications are allowed to participate in this energy exchange uh, uh, system. And again, this is happening both within a microgrid, across a microgrid, and, the, and, and, and the, with the larger distribution service provider, um, the utility. So we're, uh, we, what we do is we start right at the at the, at the beginning, right? Right at the machine itself. We create the identity for the machine to create trust for that machine. We fingerprint its um, network configuration, its system configuration. Uh, we ensure that, that that fingerprint is then tamper-proof and, create, and is, is ultimately used as an identity for that machine. If the configuration changes, that machine is no longer trusted until the, the identity is uh, updated. Then we create a policy of which uh, inverter can interact with which meter, which, uh, uh, which microgrid controller, which substation, um, and create uh, actual 
enforcement points at each one of these locations to strictly control that access. And that now can expand also to other sites, not just a single microgrid, but into other microgrids as well for situations where a microgrid controller may be transacting energy with another community, with another microgrid controller. Um, so you have these peer-to-peer, device-to-device interactions going on at multiple levels uh, uh, that are because, that are too complex for you know really a system operator to really create a security policy all around this. So we automate all of this through you know a, a very dynamic approach uh, based on an identity based on enforcing uh, enforcing interactions down to the machine level and you know while creating the policies in a very central location uh, through a single you know screen and I also want to mention there that you know the uh, these interactions happen quite frequently right you have uh, energy offers demands settlements that are happening um, and you need, they need to be reconciled against you know not just the financial transaction itself, but actual, you know, physical power, whether it was actually released. Was it released based on what was offered or what was demanded? Uh, how much of it was released? So all of that requires all these, um, uh, the data to be recorded uh, uh, for, for reconciliation later. And that, that, that record needs to be highly immutable. It needs to be definitive, uh, very objective, uh, and this is where another reason why they're, they like our Zay security fabric, not only because we create trust for the devices, control the various interactions, but also record all the data in a very objective and mutable way uh, so that it can be trusted and relied upon. What I just heard you say sounds like it's drifting back into the, the, the domain of sort of traditional blockchain. It's not just permissions and authorizations that you're managing it's you actually have something more conventional blockchain wise in there in terms of recording business transactions um they're energy exchange transactions um you know it's uh, uh if you have a very uh, you have a tamper proof immutable uh peer-to-peer uh data sharing solution you know, we have an, uh, you know, customers who are interested in recording you know, you know, power data, they're interested in recording uh, actual access data, a uh, variety of data, in some cases also demands and offers, which is, um, uh, which is, you could consider financial data, but it's really business data. Andrew, I could use some clarification on something. It appears to me that For the majority of this podcast, uh, Roman was describing uh, centralized blockchains, private blockchains owned by uh, specific sites or vendors whatnot. Now, he's using terminology such as peer-to-peer, which is the diametric opposite of a centralized blockchain. Um, There wouldn't be a single authority. So I'm wondering how we moved from one to the other. Is it just that Zage, uh, the Zage fabric offers sort of both implementations or, or what? Well, again, um, we we you know we chatted afterwards, and uh, uh, if I recall correctly, Roman said that the same Zage fabric does support both the permissions ledger and other kinds of transactions. It's not two different kinds of blockchain going on. It's the one fabric that supports both kinds of ledgers. Um, 
But if I understand you correctly, the rest of your question is kind of coming back to the topic of consensus. In Bitcoin, nobody trusts anybody. And so, you know, 50 plus 1% have to agree. Um, you know, in my understanding, there is no authority in Bitcoin. You don't trust anyone. But in my understanding of the, the authority-based blockchain, there are authorities. Uh, not only there are authorities, but you know who they are. You know who these machines belong to. You know who the, who's authorized these machines. So if a power producer signs off on a block in a ledger saying, here's how much money um, I am offering the power for, once the authority for that producer has signed off on the ledger, um, they can't take it back because the the consumer, the power consumer, has a copy of that signed block. Um, if the power consumer signs the offer block, they can't take that back. If the producer has a copy of the doubly signed block, they know that the consumer saw the block and saw the offer and signed you know, the, the signed offer. You can't do that with Bitcoin because there is no authority and there's no identity. You don't know who anybody is. In the Zage fabric, in my understanding, because you know who's deployed these things, um, it makes all the difference in terms of, of uh, you know, signing and countersigning and winding up with a, a ledger that you, you can't take back. But we're coming up on the end of the podcast here. Uh, let's go back to Roman for the last word. Well, this has been very useful. Thank you. Um, we like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a thought you would like to leave with our listeners? Sure. Um, I would encourage uh, folks to visit uh, zage.com. Um, there, are, uh, there are a number of white papers down there that exp uh, explain what I just said in a you know, far greater detail. But also, we have a Fabric preview uh, that's downloadable implementation of uh, Zay Security Fabric that installs right there on your laptop where you can uh, give this, our solution, a, a, a test run. Um, it demonstrates ability to do all the various access control methods, machine-to-machine, um, user-to-machine. It's a... And, and it installs a blockchain implementation to do so right there on your laptop with, uh, within just a few minutes. You know, I'd like to offer a last word here, which is that uh, the, the blockchain that Roman's described here doesn't sound very much like the blockchain that I'm used to, that Bitcoin was originally founded on. Um, but I do think it sounds very interesting, and I'd be interested to see uh, where we go with it in the future. Yeah, I mean, um, I've... I subscribe to some academic journals and there's been countless articles in recent years about countless different variations of the blockchain. And, uh, you know, I think what Romans described here is a variation of the blockchain that is relevant to industrial security. Uh, words I never thought I'd hear myself say. I thought that, you know, the blockchain was Bitcoin and industrial was industrial and never the twain would meet. But, you know, here we are. It's a new day. Um, I learned something today. Thank you, Roman. All right, that'll just about do it for this episode of our show. Thanks to Roman Arutsunov for speaking with you, Andrew, and thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. We'll catch you next time, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.